Well, last week in our study, we looked at uh, Romans 7, uh, verses 7 through 13. And we looked specifically at the effects of the law. And we saw in the context of those particular verses that the law really does four things. It reveals sin, it arouses sin, it ruins the sinner, and it also reflects the exceeding sinfulness of sin. We also discussed that while some believe the law is to blame for their sinful actions, we really recognize as Christians that no, it's really sin. Sin is the issue, not the law. Well, today we're going to finish Romans 7, Lord willing. We're going to look at verses 14 through 25. So Romans 7, beginning in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I want to begin today by asking two questions, rhetorical questions just to get us thinking about this. First question, you don't have to raise your hand to this. How many of you sin? Second question, how many of you struggle with sin? I don't mean just sin, but struggle with sin as if there is an inward battle within you. Well, if you acknowledged that, yes, you do sin, and more than that, that you do have an inward struggle with sin, then this section of verses is vitally important for you to hear and to learn from, just as they were important for me to study this past week. Now, on the one hand, one might argue, certainly it has been argued by many, that this section of verses describes the quote-unquote carnal Christian. Maybe you've heard of that term, carnal Christian. It really denotes one who ascribes to Christianity, gives assent to it, even calling himself a Christian, but really cares nothing for living a life of obedience unto the Lord, as outlined in Scripture. R.C. Sproul writes helpfully, defining a carnal Christian as someone still in the flesh altogether is a contradiction in terms. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian by that definition. And then he goes on to say, when we are born again of the Spirit, the carnal disposition 
of our original nature is not destroyed. We have to fight against it from the day we are converted until the day we enter the gates of heaven. And we all have a residual force of the flesh, and we have to fight against it. In that sense, every Christian is a carnal Christian, but there's no such thing as a completely carnal Christian. The completely carnal are not Christians. On the other hand, there's no such thing as a Christian who is carnal less, that is, one who is so spirit-filled that he does not have to struggle with the remnants of his own carnality. Such is the Christian life. Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today. People that are proponents of carnal Christianity really believe that there's two different types or two tiers, we could say, of Christianity. You can be saved and live like the world but still be saved. Or you can be saved and live like the Bible teaches and mature in your faith. John Wesley, though he had many wonderful contributions to the church, also believed in two different tiers, we could say, of Christianity. Wesley believed that some Christians obtain a second work of grace. First, there are ordinary Christians who read their Bibles, go to church, and utilize the means of grace to grow in their walk. But then there are others who have reached the, quote, higher life or deeper life. These Christians have achieved a greater level of victory in their sin struggles and may, in fact, have times in their life when they do not sin. My friends, I want you to know there is no such thing as two tiers of Christianity. There's really, there's two types of people. There's Christians and there's non-Christians. There's Christians who are to be growing in grace And there's the non-Christian who needs to receive grace. You either serve Satan or you serve God. You've either relied upon your own self-righteousness or you're relying upon the righteousness of Jesus. You're either living for yourself or you've died to yourself. You're either living in the darkness or you're in the light. You've either given yourself to your own hedonistic pleasures or you've given yourself to God. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. It's impossible to have two different tiers of Christianity. Now, it is true that all of us in our Christian journey are at varying degrees, we could say, of sanctification. But we all are on the same journey as we're putting off the old man, continually putting on the new man, striving to be like Christ and dealing with this inward sin struggle. So I want you to see here that Paul is not writing to the unsaved person because the unsaved person doesn't have an inner struggle with sin. Right? They don't recognize it. He's not writing to the so-called carnal Christian. There's really no such thing. So Paul in these verses is writing to the mature Christian, one who is growing in his relationship with the Lord, and as he grows, is becoming more acutely aware of sin and the war within. Brothers and sisters, this text before us today is for you and for me. So let's look at this passage and discover what the Lord has for us here. In this section of verses, Paul really says the same thing three different times. 
and in slightly nuanced ways. Paul states in each lament, as John MacArthur calls them, three things. And within those, he states the problem, this is on your handout, the problem, a description of the conflict, and a brief statement of why the problem, why the conflict exists. The first lament is in verses 14 through 17. The second is 18 through 20. And the third is verses 21 to 24. First of all, we see in verse 14, Paul states the first problem. What is that? I am of the flesh, sold under sin. How does he describe the conflict? Well, we see in verse 15, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Why does this problem exist? Because of verse 17, the sin that dwells within me. And so we see Paul, and we too, are of the flesh, characterized by not doing what we want, but instead doing what we hate. Why do we do this? Because of sin. In verse 14, Paul states the rather obvious, he is of the flesh, meaning that, yes, he is a Christian, but he's still in human form. The unbeliever will satisfy his flesh, giving way to pleasing his own sinful desires. However, the believer, while of the flesh, must not not satisfy the flesh, not give way into temptations of the flesh. This is similar to being uh, kind of living in the world but not being of the world. We're still of the flesh, and we will be until the Lord takes us home to glory, but we cannot succumb to the desires of the flesh. What is your flesh telling you? It's okay to speak gossip. It's okay to speak lies. It's okay to worry and be anxious. It's okay to be angry when you've been offended. It's okay to lust. No. That's the flesh of the world. Don't give way to it. While we are no longer slaves to sin, it is true, we are no longer slaves to sin. We've seen that in previous verses of Romans, we will still fall prey to temptations from the, pl- from the flesh. And we will still be attracted by its allurements and enticements. However, the genuine Christian cannot be happy with sin because it's completely contrary to his new nature in Christ. Now, Paul states in verse 14, he was sold under sin. We know from previous verses we're no longer under the dominion of sin and no longer under bondage to it. However, since we are still of the flesh, sin can still harm us, though it can no longer dominate us. William Hendrickson writes, For the present, the Christian is living in an era in which two ages, the old and the new, overlap. There was a time when Paul was exclusively a sinner, There will be a time when he will be exclusively a saint. Right now, as he is dictating this letter, he is a sinner saint. A saint to be sure, but also a sinner, hence the tension, the inner conflict. And it's a struggle which every true believer experiences and about which the apostle continues to speak. Do you sin? Yes, that means you're a sinner. Are you a Christian chosen by God before the foundation of the world? Yes, that makes you a saint. We are in this life sinner saints. Now, Paul describes this conflict in verse 15 
that he doesn't understand himself, for he does the very thing he hates. How many of y'all have felt that way before? I'm sure if Paul felt that way, surely you have felt that way. Perhaps it was that sin struggle was so characterized your life before you came to know Christ that has now reared its ugly head again. And you have fallen prey to the temptation once again. If we're to be honest with ourselves, it's a constant struggle, internal struggle. It's not an external physical battle that we can actually see visibly, but rather it's an internal spiritual battle. Remember, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12. John MacArthur writes, It was not Paul's conscience that was bothering him because of some unforgiven sin or selfish reluctance to follow the Lord. Rather, it was his inner man recreated in the likeness of Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit that now could see something of the true holiness, goodness, and glory of God's law and was grieved at the least infraction of falling short of it. How does that relate to you and me? When we become Christians and as we grow in our Christian walk and we're further sanctified and made more holy, don't you understand the law of God by the help of the Holy Spirit better? And you see how grievous the sin is and how we've got to fight against it. Well, after stating the problem in verse 14 and then describing the conflict in verse 15, he moves on to discuss why the struggle in verse 17, which is sin. He writes, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, remember, it's Paul is writing to the mature, growing Christian, and he says that sin continues to dwell in him, and so it does in us. It is true that we will not be rid of sin on this side of heaven. When we cross into those celestial gates and enter into a glorified state, we will be rid of sin forever. And yet, while on earth, while still of the flesh, we will still struggle with sin. But... As we grow in our sanctification, it should be said of us, may it be said of us, that we are, as we grow in our faith, that we are sinning less and less. Those of you that are married, this is a great question to ask your spouse. You know that sin that I struggled with years ago? How would you say that's going? How am I doing in that area? It's an important question to ask. Those of you that maybe are not married, that have a good friend, it's great questions to ask because we want to ask the hard questions so we can be held accountable that you and I might grow in our faith, being sanctified in our faith, drawing closer to the one who shed his very own blood for us. Well, the second lament we see in verses 18 through 20, Paul again states the problem Initially, in verse 18, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. He describes a condition in verses 18 and 19. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And then in verse 20, 
the problem, why does it exist? Again, what's the answer there? Sin. It's sin that dwells in me. Now, of course, we know verse 18 to be true, that nothing good dwells in our flesh. Why is that? Namely, because of original sin. Adam and Eve sinned. They were our first parents. Adam, acting as our federal head, sinned, and it affected all his posterity. That's you and me. All that would come after them would be born in a state of sin and misery, to enmity with God, with an utterly depraved, sinful nature. Which means every part of our being, so to speak, is tainted with sin. Now, in our sanctified soul, we really desire, don't we, to do what is right. We want to obey and please the Lord in our lives. However, our sinful flesh, still being tainted by sin, prevents us from doing the good we want to do and instead keeps us doing evil. Now, to be sure, Paul is not passing the buck, so to speak, on his responsibility to own up to his sin. He's just describing the reason that he does evil and doesn't do the good he wants to do. Dear believer, this is why we have to be serious in the Christian life about getting rid of sin in our lives For it is sin that will prevent us from living the life that the Lord desires from us and has called us to. It is sin that will prevent us from being as close to the Lord as we should be. It is sin that will harm us, will harm our relationships, and cause us to be lukewarm instead of being on fire for the Lord. And what he's done, what he is doing, what he will do for us as his adopted children. Not too long ago, I listened to another pastor who will remain unnamed that was preaching on this same text. And one of the things he said was he had entered into a new discipleship relationship with this guy. And in talking about this particular text, he looked at the guy and he said, you know, I'm going to expect you to sin. And it just kind of struck me the wrong way. And so I started doing some thinking about that, researching and praying. <laughs> and it occurred to me that if you look at the word expect, expect means likely to happen. And it hit me that a better word for that is no. You see, I know that as fellow believers in this room, I know that you're going to sin. Just like you know that I'm going to sin. Right? But we expect that we will be killing that very sin. Are you with me? Expect we, it is likely to happen. To know means to be familiar with, to be acquainted with. We're all familiar with sin. We're all acquainted with sin. But what should be likely to happen, what we should expect to happen in each other's lives, in our own lives is that we're mortifying that very sin that we know all too well by the grace of God and by the help of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? So the expectation is not sin. The expectation is that as we grow in our faith, that we'll be sinning less and less, and that there'll be a dying and mortification to that sin. Thirdly, verses 21 through 24, the third lament, Paul states the problem, again in verse 21, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 
The condition, verses 22 through 23, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Why does this problem exist? Verse 24, this body of death. So we see that even when we want to do what is good and right, what's close at hand? It's evil. It's just lurking there, right? John MacArthur writes, lingering sin does battle with every good thing a believer desires to do, every good thought, every good intention, every good motive, every good word, every good deed. The Lord warned Cain when he became angry that Abel's sacrifice was accepted, but his own was not. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Genesis 4, 7. Sin crouches at the door. Yes, even the door of the believer in order to lead people into disobedience. Sin is a battle that we will continue to fight, but we are to rule over it. Not in the flesh, but by this Holy Spirit's help, we are to rule over it. Notice that Paul says in verse 22, he delights in the law of God. This certainly could not be said of the unbeliever or this quote-unquote carnal Christian, but one who is a genuine, growing, mature Christian who delights in God's law. It reinforces the idea that this passage was written for the mature Christian, who, yes, is in sanctification, growing in sanctification by the grace of God, by the help of the Holy Spirit, but one who, as he is growing, the Spirit makes aware sometimes more sin. Have you ever experienced that? Maybe, you, maybe you've believed that you've kind of got one sin pattern behind you. By the help of the Holy Spirit, you put it to death, and then another one comes up. It's a battle, isn't it? It's an inward battle, putting to death sin, putting off the old, putting on the new. Notice Paul says that his members wage war against the law of his mind. Now, it doesn't mean that his flesh always does bad and his mind always thinks sanctified thoughts. That's not what he's saying here. One of the things that this underscores, and we discussed this at length in our study a couple of years ago on spiritual warfare, is that Satan will often attack the mind. He'll often attack the mind. And he does so to get us to question to doubt the faithfulness and the goodness of God. We certainly see this in the culture today. There's an agenda that's targeting us and our children and our grandchildren to get us to question God. In fact, the the basic idea is instilling fear in our minds, causing many to question the sovereign hand of God. This is why it's so important that our minds be transformed as we continue in our journey of sanctification. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be, what, transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Well, how do we do this practically? What's the ordinary means of grace? Robert Murray McShane, who is a wonderful pastor, died at a young age at 29, once described his morning devotions as a means of giving the eye the habit of looking upward all the day. 
morning devotions as giving the eye the habit of looking upward all the day. Knowing his thoughts would not drift toward heaven in the afternoon or evening unless he fixed his mind there the first thing, he began first thing in the morning in heaven. John MacArthur writes this. It's on your handout about these verses. Although a Christian cannot avoid living in the flesh, he can and should avoid walking according to the flesh and its sinful ways. Well, how does Paul end this section of verses? Look with me at verses 24 to 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, with, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You almost see a frustration there, don't you? Kind of hear it there, that I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. It's very similar, his anguish over sin is very similar to David's anguish for not being all that God called him to be. We read in Psalm 38, 1 through 4, David saying, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Perhaps... You have felt this way, just sick, overcome by, burdened by your own sin, realizing the grievousness of your sin against a holy God. Robert Haldane says that wisely observed, or wisely observed, that men perceive themselves to be sinners in direct proportion as they had previously discovered the holiness of God and his law. Men perceive themselves to be sinners in direct proportion as they had previously discovered the holiness of God and his law. You get that? And that's why it's so important, as we say it so often, you can't preach the gospel without preaching the law. That's why both the Old and the New Testaments are needed We can't just be, quote-unquote, encouraged and built up in the Christian walk without being reminded of the law and its requirements, but also be reminded with that of how wonderful the Lord Jesus is that he perfectly fulfilled the requirement of the law. See, this is part of the process of sanctification, becoming aware of sin, putting to death sin, growing in our faith, How do we strip away sin in our life if we are not first made aware of it? We can't. And how are we to be made aware of it but through the law of God? But there is a day coming, and Paul says it here, where we will sin no more and the Lord will deliver us as his dear children from our bodies of death. This is a day that we look forward to, but in the meantime, we've got to press on. And we press on one with another as a covenant family of God, seeking to mortify sin, seeking to live for the Lord that he might be glorified and praised in our lives. R.C. Sproul concludes this section by saying, After pouring out his heart, 
Paul concludes this section by saying that if we have problems walking in the Christian life, inconsistencies in our pilgrimage, well, then we can look at him. That is Paul. He had the same problems. No triumphalism flows from the pen of this apostle. He was keenly in touch with who he was in his fallen condition, but he was also keenly in touch with who he was in Christ Jesus, who had rescued him from the principle that resides in the flesh. Let's pray. God in heaven, we are grateful, so grateful for your word. You've not only called us out of the darkness and into the light to be your dear children. Father, you haven't left us there. You desire that we grow in holiness. So yes, while we are keenly aware of sin, we are well acquainted with sin. Father, help it to be that we expect ourselves by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to put off these sins which so easily ensnare and entangle, and to live for you, that our lives might bear testimony of your faithfulness to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.